0: Welcome to another Funds on Film podcast, I'm Scott and I'll be joined in due course by Craig and Drew, but uh, due to a few scheduling issues, we've not been able to bring you a fresh new podcast in our usual time slot, so to tide you over, please accept this selection of our favourite reviews from the fourth year of our podcast, and normal service will be resumed shortly. We'll start things off with a review of a film you're all wrong about, Hereditary, from our September 2018 intermission episode. I'm not going to stop you talking, I'm going to make you talk about Hereditary, which is the next film we must discuss. Oh, (laughs)
1: Christ, no, can I just talk about Mila (laughs) Kunis fumblingly instead?
0: (laughs) It's It's probably more scary, so...
1: So, then, another entry into the Drew Tries Horror Again series. But before I go further, I'd like to ask a question. It will, no doubt, sound like I'm being facetious. And, to be honest, I probably am, if only a little. But, are horror films meant to be scary? Serious question, though. I know that being straight-up frightening isn't the be-all and end-all of a horror film. Atmosphere and tension can play a large part, too. But, aren't they supposed to be, you know, horrifying? (laughs) I ask because I wonder if somewhere along the line I fundamentally misunderstood them, given how few have made me even a little scared. So few, I suspect, that even those that have in some way unsettled me can be dismissed as a statistical anomaly. So maybe the problem is me expecting them to be frightening. This I doubt, however, given that some video games and plenty of books over the years have been able to exert exactly that response in me. And a misunderstanding of purpose certainly doesn't excuse the typically piss-poor acting, writing and direction most of the genre seems to exhibit. I do still try, though on occasion, hoping that I will find that elusive film that will get me right up. Which, while I suspect you can all guess where this is heading, brings me to Hereditary, the latest horror, and crikey, can I not put enough inverted commas around that word, Mm. horror film to pique my interest and persuade me to test its wares. Certainly, the trailer looked interesting, and the idea of the link between the happenings in the house and the detailed miniatures created by Tony Collette's character had the potential to be creepy. Sadly, the miniatures more or less have sod all to do with anything that happens in the film and seem to have mostly been added to create stylish trailers and posters. Okay, yes, you could argue that the framing of the shots matches those little dioramas, but the visuals, like everything else here, are empty and dull the miniatures match collects Carter preoccupations, they say. Mind-blowing. There has been so much breathless hyperbole associated with hereditary, with newspapers and other websites carrying ridiculous headlines like, and I am quoting verbatim, hereditary, scientifically proven to be scariest movie of the year, people are calling this new movie the scariest horror film ever made and it's leaving them terrified and scariest horror film in years is so terrifying people are crying at cinema these reports like this film are absolute grade horror <laughs> Tony Collette plays Annie Graham, an artist from a family with an almost comically extensive history of mental illness married to Gabriel Burns Steve and mother to Peter and Charlie who are definitely human. <laughs> Is human a character trait? They have hair as well. The human <laughs> and have hair. The film begins with the funeral of Annie's mother, an apparently unpleasant woman whose influence persists in Annie's life after her death and seems to be affecting her family, particularly her daughter Charlie, Millie Shapiro. A creepy idiot child who chops the head off of dead birds with scissors and has to be constantly reminded not to eat nuts despite having a potentially fatal nut allergy. Her son son, Peter, Alex Wolf, seems less affected at first, at least until further tragedy strikes. But maybe that's because his entire character motivation seems to be cannabis. As things get worse for Annie, she starts visiting a bereavement support group, where she meets Joan, and Dowd, and, on the surface, friendly woman who begins to exert her own influence over the family. Mysteries are uncovered because, of course, everything is not as it seems. Most notably that this seems like an interesting creepy film. <laughs> Hereditary doesn't even have the good grace to be the sort of really bad horror film whose plot and story you can ridicule and enjoy tearing apart. If only it could rise to such a basic level of interest. But this is just astonishingly, almost maliciously dull. It lacks jump scares. Excellent. The positives end there. (laughs) There is no atmosphere. There is no tension. There aren't even characters. Nor, and I've accepted this due to the utter absence of anything else, are there stereotypes, archetypes, nor even ciphers. There are just some people who are there. The acting is, well, the acting is something that happens in other films, <laughs> saving for Gabriel Byrne, who doesn't appear to have given this even minimal effort, and wishes he seems he was in one of those other films. The acting is terrible, especially a spectacularly awful turn from the normally dependable Tony Collette. Now, I'm aware, as I say this, that I am in fact turning this into the sort of terrible horror film whose plot and story you can tear apart. And honestly, it's too dull to deserve it. So stop now. I will just add, though, that this film has made me wonder if I'm a psychopath. Because two related scenes, scenes that are supposed to be utterly horrifying, made me laugh. Like, a lot. A lot, a lot. Like, tears in my eyes laughing. <laughs> Also, in this film's world corpses don't smell. Screw this film. <laughs>
0: yes, um What a torrent of pish. <laughs> uh I think so it's at least one every year they say, Oh no, but no, this is actually a good horror film. No, go and watch Mama everyone. This one's this was one for this is an intelligent horror film for clever people to enjoy. Uh, this Ah oh, Mama, is yes. <laughs> and invariably <laughs> I'll go and see it, invariably torrent of pish this is no exception yeah just I, I didn't i didn't hate the acting so much in like the first half i thought it was it, that, that that kind of first half where it, it seems like it might be trying to do something that's more psychological in nature and it could be building towards some sort of vaguely <laughs> comprehensible uh, breakdown or something happening along yeah. those lines it was glacially paced and it was bored senseless but i could at least i could at least i had some sort of rough idea of where it might be going and then the whole second half of this film is apparently me supposed to be scared of a fat man in the woods and the rest of it is, is just absolute garbage <laughs>
1: Oh, uh, <laughs> absolute garbage absolutely garbage issue it's got i kind of just wish it'd be worse because i think i just enjoyed hating it was like oh it's just so Bored by it? Yes,
0: um, just
1: oh, t- t- two hours. I think it's a bored. Is it bored two hours, hours seven minutes?
0: Uh, and like, just almost nothing happens. Like, there's there's the one sort of shocking death in the first half, th- in that first half somewhere, like maybe yes. two thirds through that, which I th- guess worked. But but then it did nothing else to, with it, and uh, yeah, the, the rest of it was just hot garbage.
1: Yeah, you know, you say that this shocking death worked you know how I said one scene made me laugh till I was had tears in my eyes
0: to be honest I found it quite amusing too so you're not alone yeah. in that one but. that's
1: good because I was so bored and then that happened because it was so ridiculous and so stupid to build up to it and I was yeah. pissing myself laughing at that scene I really really was um, so I'm glad it's not me and then it's when that very scene is referenced in a minute or later yeah. I was like yeah I'm also laughing a great deal here so if I yeah. am a psychopath at least I have company
0: Yes, I I don't know if that's different if you're in the communal atmosphere of watching it in a cinema screen, but when I was watching it with my wife and my mother-in-law, I was like, no, we were all pretty much amused by that. It it was shocking, but shocking in a sort of ha-ha kind of way, rather than shocking (laughs) in the, the sort of way that I think it was intended to be. You know, there's films that will, that could like prey upon the parents' worst fears of children going missing and things like that, or your children dying. And I can understand why that would have a, a very real emotional impact on people, but not the way this is presented, where basically it's a wily e. coyote cartoon. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and it's, yeah. when Tony Collette turns into this wide-eyed crazy person at the end of the act, I, I like Tony Collette a lot, and I've never yeah. seen. Any hint that she could act this badly. I mean, she has to work <laughs> to act this badly, surely. Um there's a scene right near the end where she's doing something to herself with I don't know, like a cheese wire or something or mm. um and just this stupid wide eyed look in her face and it's it, it it's absolutely risible mm. I And mean, if people just like had found this scary and things like I mean, okay. And maybe it didn't work for me. But as I said, the absolute breathless hyperbole about this—the scariest film of the year, the scariest horror film—everyone's like, there's not one thing that's even <laughs> vaguely frightening about this film, not even yeah. a little bit. <laughs> it's
0: like it seems like it's almost objectionably, objectively boring. The, mm-hmm. the, it just seems like I, I don't understand how you can defend it. I don't. Uh, I just don't get it. This is not the film for me, right? Yeah. If you're if you like it, more power to you. But yes dumpster yeah. fire.
1: When you get the revelation of what they're doing at the end it's like you know if this had been a sort of bog standard terrible horror film that probably I would just have snorted with derisive laughter at mm. what that was but you got to the end and like yeah that more or less figures that's dumb <laughs> I don't care
0: That's dumb but it was just, at least it's a thing that happened in a film where very few things happen so you know yeah. it's got that going for it at least
1: <laughs> This is a a film that so little was happening that I was hung up for a long time on the doormat <laughs> because there, there's a, there's a doormat that has some significance in this, right? And it's supposed to be, you know, it's helping one character uncover some secrets and it's meant to be kind of creepy and stuff. And I'm like, who in the earth saws a doormat with that material? Yeah. That would be destroyed <laughs> after you'd wiped your foot in the three times. <laughs> And you can't say it's meant to be decorative. It's a doormat. People would like to feel it because it's a doormat. They'd expect to use it for that, but it would fall apart. Why would you have that as so a doormat? And honestly, that's basically occupied my mind for so much of this, him, this run to the film because saw so all else was happening. Yeah, Um <laughs> that's how bad and empty this film is. D- this doormat makes no sense. <laughs> um, and yeah, then. As I mentioned that corpse thing too so there's a corpse at some point I don't think that's giving it away because I actually people didn't watch it they save themselves <laughs> and, but um, and I'm thinking right okay maybe this isn't one of the, for the character who discovers a corpse's head that that's yeah. kind of cliched but okay I'll go with that and then no it, it's not an imaginary thing it's there but, but apparently you can't spell a corpse I had a dead mouse in my house once I could still a mouse, you know. You know how hmm. big mice are. I could still smell it weeks later, even after I disposed of it. This is a whole human body. Well, no smell. Okay. Again, <laughs> and when nothing else is happening, you begin to focus on that because you know your mind has to have something to do yeah. while waiting <laughs> for anything at all to happen, <laughs> which it failed to do. So there we go.
0: Yes, registry.
1: No, thank you. Just also see films that rely on some inexplicably stupid decision by a character to, to get their plot going. I hate them, and this is one of them. Hmm. Here is a character with an allergy and doesn't have the thing to treat the allergy that anybody else in the world with allergy would have with them at all times without ever even having to think about it, but no. Mm. But, mm, mm, <laughs> no. <laughs> now I'm giving this film more emotion than it deserves, so I'll stop myself right <laughs> <laughs>
0: we'll move on to The Day of the Jackal from our look at film adaptations of Frederick Forsyth back in December 2018. So I suppose we may as well just dive in straight to what is his, probably his most famous and well-regarded book and probably the best of the adaptations we'll speak of today as well with The Day of the Jackal. And uh, Drew, could
1: you give us a bit of a rundown on that one? I will do. After France withdrew from Algeria and granted the country independence in the early 1960s, Several attempts were made to assassinate the French president, Charles de Gaulle, mostly by the right-wing paramilitary OSA, Organisation Armée Secrète) or Secret Armed Organisation. It's not much (laughs) of a name, really, is it? They (laughs) do
2: what they say on the (laughs) tin.
1: A French patriot group who accused de Gaulle of disloyalty and treason to the French Republic. After another failed attempt... The film recreates this real attempt at the beginning, in 1962, the OAS look to an outsider whose existence will be known to only a select few and who therefore cannot be betrayed by French police infiltrators or by torturing OAS members. The assassin that they hire is Edward Fox's Chacal, the Jackal, presumably British but whose identity is entirely unknown beyond a reputation for efficiency. He gets to work meticulously planning the assassination and making all the necessary preparations. The French authorities, due to this plan by the OSA, are oblivious, but they begin to get the idea that the OAS is planning something, and since they've tried numerous times already, it's a fairly good bet that what they're planning is the assassination of the president. <laughs> <laughs> What follows is a race against time for the police and a match between the implacable, methodical, capable and highly intelligent Deputy Commissioner Claude Lebel, Michael Lonsdale, and the implacable, methodical, capable (laughs) and highly intelligent Jackal. And it's fascinating. The Day of the Jackal cleaves very close to Forsyth's novel, but is, to my mind, one of the very few literary adaptations that are actually better than the source, as a little of the unnecessary fat is trimmed off, leaving a relatively sedately paced but taut and lean thriller behind. The two leads are simply tremendous. Foxy's killer is so clinical, free largely from emotion, yet not somehow free from charisma, and he's captivating to watch. And so satisfying is his preparation to watch, so expertly paced here by director Fred Zinneman and editor Ralph Kemplin, that it's quite easy to fall into the trap of wanting him to succeed. (laughs) Yeah. You know, up until you remember the whole cold-blooded murderer thing, even if De Gaulle was an asshat. Michael Lonsdale's stoic Lebel is perhaps my favourite screen detective ever. His unassuming yet assured manner, though unlike the Jackal he does seem to be affected by stress and emotion at times, his quiet tolerance of the doubts and insults of his oafish and supercilious superiors, and, above all, his methodical investigation. I have referenced this many times before in the podcast, and likely will do so again, just how much I enjoy the fact that LaBelle's pursuit of the Jacko relies almost entirely on hard work, clear thinking, intelligence and experience, and not on tawdry things like serendipity, uncommon luck or in the case of some of the worst examples, something largely indistinguishable from magic or a deus ex machina. This is not a film that I will ever tire of watching, and not even Richard Gere can silly this for me.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's an absolutely masterclass, and it's kind of a recurring theme, I think, in a lot of uh, Frederick's adaptations, where uh, some upper echelon nonsense aside... All the lead characters in it tend to be hyper competent at what they do, and there's something it's incredibly so satisfying, satisfying about yeah, just watching someone good at some something doing yeah. something. Uh, th- does get, give a lot, of, giving uh, them joy the time and space to do it. Then. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, uh, and just uh, I agree entirely. It makes for a really compelling watch, uh, really edge of the seat stuff a lot of the time. And yeah, it's just, uh, uh, echo everything you're saying, it's just a lovely bit to see uh, investigations that don't rely on arbitrary coincidence or other people selling other people out. It's all just good old fashioned hard work uh, from the Ooh. days when it's, it seems even harder to do this kind of work. You can't just uh, have a magic button that snoops on every cell phone com- conversation or anything like that. It's uh, just hard work and common sense and it's uh, just fascinating to watch. It's interesting for me that I,
2: Edward Fox I, d- I don't find to be an actor of the broadest range but he's absolutely this This is one of those roles which is like a once in a lifetime thing where he's mm-hmm. absolutely perfect in this role. Mm-hmm. It fits, fits him like a glove. That very prim and proper English veneer, his enunciation, uh, his very sort of matter of fact way of approaching this monumental task, and this this obviously what would be a historical act um, mm-hmm. <laughs> would it, would it come to <laughs> pass? The, the weight of history hangs over this film essentially up until the very final act, and he goes about it so methodically and. and um, so many, so many times, uh, in in other films, we'll see the character of the assassin portrayed, and they'll attempt to p- portray them as being someone charismatic, and it quite often or almost always doesn't work, yeah. or it's just such a one-dimensional character by necessity of that sort of cool, calculating hitman uh, routine that does. There's no humanity to the character. There is no uh, toehold for for the audience. But there's there's something about Edward F- Fox's portrayal um, and the character himself. He's he, he comes across as very emotionless and and very efficient. But at the same time, in a sense, he does he does have a moral code, as as we find through his interaction with some of his sources. Um, for example, Cyril Cusack, who is. Uh, amazing as the gunsmith. Yeah. I absolutely love Cyril Cusack yeah. in this movie. I don't think I've seen him do anything better and he's
1: only got about five minutes of screen time. Um and Cyril Cusack is Jack Black in oh god. Sorry, sorry Kate, but I'm just off sorry. This is just making that film come back to me and I'm, that film made me so angry. <laughs>
2: Alright, take yeah, your time I'm
1: Jack Black uh, <laughs> Yes, because Cyril Cusack's so good.
2: <laughs> yes um, The sort of relationship that he has there Which is built on uh, mutual respect Cyril Cusack's character You know, asks no questions whatsoever of the jackal He doesn't make a nuisance of himself He is a master of his own craft He is he is the person that This world, you know, well mm. not world-renowned Because actually part of his Part of his um, part of his skill is he's not particularly world-renowned <laughs> no, Nobody knows who the hell he is um, This is someone who he trusts Who he views as an equal And at the point at which he um, interacts with the uh, the character of the Forger who I don't... Does he have a name? Ronald Pickup's uh, character? Is it just... Let me scroll IMDB. So. No, he's just known as the Forger. I don't think um, the name of the
1: book. Are they just going to... Um,
2: yeah, I'm trying to remember because it was so long ago that I read the read the bloody book.
1: I read it last week, but I don't remember them mentioning a the name if it was. I think he's it's just the Forger.
2: Yeah, it's not important, certainly. what What is important is that that character is not as morally um, strict in his operations as Cyril Cusack um, or Edward Fox in this movie and he he, his, his attempts to extort the jackal um don't work out all that well for him yeah. so he's he, yes yes he he has a moral codes within his within the framework of his his work um, and he's he is he records. is charismatic yes he is he is a charismatic character and he is quite engaging in that sense where he, he could have come across as um, as as very difficult to uh, to engage with but um obviously he's he's not a nice character <laughs> in the traditional mm. sense we're not rooting for him necessarily although as you point out drew actually at some points we come pretty close purely through I think a certain level of respect for what he does. Yeah, I've
1: seeing him do this thing so well, like, I kind of want yes. to see him fall through this because it's so meticulously planned. It's, so it's satisfying
2: in the sense that you might sort of watch an Olympian who is representing um, a, a, a country diametrically opposed to the ideals of your own country, but they're they're doing such a wonderful job at their craft that you can't help but <laughs> sort of admire their admire their talent and want and want them to win. And I think you're right as well. It is very much superior to the source material which is a quite unnecessarily bloated novel which is why at the age of about 12 or whatever it was I found myself putting it down more than more than once and having to come back and start again over the and I think it was I was probably in my late teens before I actually went back and read the thing from start to finish this film as an adaptation feels like it still has that space to breathe and for the characters to operate in but it is much more clinical and much more streamlined and much more efficient in the way that it portrays the events it's also one of those films that's just quite happy for the audience to to come along uh, for the ride and and trust them with uh, some modicum of intelligence there's no you know there's no real on the nose moments where you know basil exposition pops up and just (laughs) explains to you exactly um exactly what it is that michael lonsdale's character's thinking or or what his methodology is um it's it's just a it's on on a technical level i'm not sure it's necessarily one of the best films of the 70s because the 70s was a hell of a decade for film but it's yes. one of it's one of my favorite films of the 70s um and it's a, it's a wonderful wonderful thing it's be, it's become a comfort film it's one of a yeah. it's one of a list of about five films that if I'm having a crap day and I'm having a day in the sofa and I'm not feeling well I'll I'll, I'll get under the blanket and I'll stick this on
1: yeah I, I I could actually get on board with that it's it's probably one of my favorite films ever because I, I just Maybe because, like you say, quick, comment film. I could just sit down and watch this anytime, anywhere. Mm. Uh, and yeah, really, as I said, I, I could not tire of watching this film. Which it's so satisfying.
2: Mm-hmm. Definitely.
1: Yes, I agree entirely. Very good. Very good film indeed. And um, I'd be very
2: surprised if we don't circle around at the end of this and declare that this is easily the best adaptation of Fred's I mean,
0: size work. We, we can declare that now, I think. Yes.
1: Um, when you <laughs> said probably at the beginning of my first word, instead of introducing this, almost was let's just stop with it, probably. Um, here is. Yes. Yeah.
0: We've alluded to it a few times, so we should at least mention that it was remade ish in '97 <laughs> uh, as The Jackal, uh, Bruce Willis and Richard Gere vehicle and it doesn't warrant a lot of discussion other to say that this is much worse on every level part of that strange time when Hollywood was fascinated with IRA hitmen for some reason that became, <laughs> uh, became a thing yeah, um,
1: Sympathetic to the IRA despite them being murderers you know it's, yeah. like, that, that was a really weird thing that Patriot Games true. I mean, I true. Know
2: that- The US would not sell guns
0: to bad people No <laughs> Come on
1: No, No they wouldn't No
0: uh, I mean, Who the thing... Me is, journalists? <laughs> I mean, obviously the thing everyone goes to to insult this film is Bruce Willis' daft wigs and bad accents, which I think really does a great job of distracting from Richard Gere's oh. terrible accent. <laughs> yes, I was going to say, I don't <laughs> think Bruce Willis's accent is the worst <laughs> thing in that bad boy.
1: <laughs> no, Bruce Willis, that distracts from Bruce Willis's terrible acting in that film. Um, yes. But it's Richard Gere's terrible acting, terrible accent... Completely pointless character is one of the biggest problems, or three of the three of the biggest problems. Um,
2: the best thing about film. the best thing about that movie is watching Bruce Willis so clearly trying to overcome every fibre of his being and and act um, <laughs> and, uh, act act in such a way as he imagines he might attract a homosexual man. Mm -hmm. To his his flat. (laughs) Nobody's buying it, Bruce. That was a bridge too far, mate. Come on. (laughs) We appreciate you trying, but go go home. We've all had a few.
1: Yeah, and then also there's... um... Mathilde May's accent, which is also awful, just in keeping with the, the theme of terrible accents, because she's a French woman that she's supposed to be a Basque separatist and like meh, meh, mm. but there's just bad accents all around.
2: It's, Listen, in fairness, Frederick Forsyth wrote to really bad accents.
1: <laughs> it's weird, that film actually says it's based on the screenplay for The Day of the Jackal, which is yeah. weird. It's actually but it's got things that are in the book that aren't in the Fred Cinnamon mm. films, which is actually based more on the book and it's, it's like unnecessary
2: stuff. I've always viewed it as very much more a, re, a sort of a, a reimagining of the film rather than a novel but you're right, there's a lot of stuff in there in fact, th- yeah, there are there are some parts of the novel that aren't in the day of the jackal that make it into
1: yeah, exactly. this the
2: jackal yeah, the which is weird the OAS guys
1: hold up in a hotel them um,
2: mm.
1: picking on this the, na- the surnames change I think but um, the first name Victor of this European, um, Eastern European thug who's protecting mm. the OAS, OAS yeah. guys them, that being the way they get into it, that's in the Jackal, that's, that's mm-hmm. in the book but not in the original film mm-hmm. and then there is that whole chapter of the book that they didn't, that Fred Cinnamon didn't feel fit to put in 1973 which was um, this American with the terrible Irish accent playing a sympathetic <laughs> um, <laughs> terrorist to catch the other assassin That was. it's weird that that was never in the Fred Cinnamon version <laughs> Oh Begora, I'm just very misunderstood Yeah and it's strange, coming
0: from Michael Caton Jones, a, a good local Broxbourne lad who Ooh. put this out and it just seems like it would have a lot of political red flags for anyone in Britain. But anyway, I suppose one man's freedom fighters, another man's terrorist and all that, but still, come on, it's IRA.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, not not 1920s IRA, when it might be said because, you know, the British were shooting Irish people and things then. <laughs> you know, 1970s onwards, IRA, when like, what part of living in Britain from that point was... Um, with you being subjugated or somehow having a poor standard of living by not living in your own country? No. Mm. <laughs> not sympathetic.
0: Mm. Just killers. Yeah, so
1: we're recommending
0: not to watch The Jackal. It is bad. Right. But no, so, it's, it's entirely sensible that they have the massive, massive gun. No, no it's not. There's nothing sensible about that entire film uh, from start to finish. <laughs> also from December 2018, this time our intermission episode, it's The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Okay then, Craig.
1: True. The Coen Brothers have Ooh, a new film. That certainly they certainly do, in which they talk about people being like ferrets. And well, I'll let you tell everybody more about it. But can I just say that when I went to watch this film, I was not expecting the sash. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah,
2: well, that we'll, threw me. <laughs> we'll, we'll mention something of that section, maybe, maybe not f- for the purposes of the sash, but yes, interesting, interesting. The latest from the Cohen brothers, uh, "The Ballad of Buster Scruggs," comes to you courtesy of Netflix, which, in retrospect, seems a good fit for this slightly less commercial endeavor, uh, being an anthology sextet of short stories set among the American Old West. Fronted by Tim Blake Nelson as a self-proclaimed San Saba songbird himself, the first segment of Scruggs is by far and away the most engaging. The cautionary tale of an upbeat, archly pragmatic gunslinger with improbable (laughs) aim and a penchant for song. Now... I have to confess to being no great fan of Tim Blake Nelson's dramatic stylings. Indeed, I consider him to have almost single-handedly ruined Siriana for me in his mere moments of screen time. <laughs> with this in mind, I was not particularly looking forward to the Cohen's latest, being as the scant marketing I had seen seemed to revolve entirely around his visage. <laughs> Imagine my surprise then uh, when I found this to be by some margin the most enjoyable 20 minutes on offer at times rivalling the Cohen's best darkly comedic moments and setting a wonderful tone that I was eager to see sustained throughout the remaining five tales that I was eager to see sustained eager (laughs) the second section starring James Franco as a bank robber shares some of the first segment's dark humour and engaging character albeit somewhat diluted Any fears that this particular story might not have sufficient steam to carry the necessary momentum are alleviated by it being the most brief, Uh, and in the absence of any meaningful context or message, it does at least have the good grace to exit the building at a brisk pace. So far, so interesting. At this point, I was enjoying watching the Coens cut loose and having a bit of a play around. Sadly, the remainder of the sections are of very variable quality, lack almost any sense of humour, and at least two of them could stand to lose 25% of their runtime. Contrary to the opening tales, these segments offer little that is engaging beyond some admittedly wonderful individual performances. And in one instance, we watch Liam Neeson commit to film one of the most starkly cynical vignettes in human history <laughs> Worst agent ever. <laughs> or or perhaps most most literal agent ever uh, in particular I found myself wishing I could spend more time with Bill Heck and Zoe Kazan and in their incarnations from the fifth tale on offer but again we are treated to a resolution of sorts that callously deprives us mm. of any such hope. Uh, the more I've thought about it over the last 24 hours the order this whole approach to the movie seems. In the absence of much traditional narrative or for the most part levity, it feels at times as though the purpose here is to demonstrate just how well the Cones have mastered the art of character by callously disposing of them just as easily <laughs> as they appear to conjure them. Which is not to say that there's nothing to enjoy here. Again, as brief as the time we spend with them may be, there are some wonderful characters embodied in wonderful performances, and the comic moments that come are often as inspired as one could hope for. I'm just kind of worried that the point is... V- <laughs> I'm just kind of worried that the point of it all may
0: be as downbeat as I fear it is, or that even worse, there may be no point at all. <laughs> I really enjoyed The Ballad Buster Shrugs, but I'm quite glad I didn't have to do any sort of thinking about an introduction for it, because (laughs) I suspect that that might have started to ruin it a little bit for me. As it is, it's going to go into the really enjoyable minor Coen Brothers canon for me, and I will never watch this again. Um, I will happily have spent the two in a bit i think it is hours with it mm-hmm. and yes uh, I, I i enjoyed most of it i had a smile on my face i enjoyed the characters i got to the end of it well yes that was a thing i enjoyed it i'm never going to think about it again and perhaps that is the only way to approach it if you want to stay sane i don't believe there's much of a point to any of it no. it's just a nice little bunch of tales that i enjoyed the performances and and it looks lovely as well, of course, but you can, kind of, that's kind of table stakes for Cohen Brothers stuff, I think. Yeah.
1: yeah, I i really enjoyed it. I'm not, it was a bit uneven in terms of how much I enjoyed mm. it. I really enjoyed it. And I know there were lots of theories about what it's about. I'm not convinced about it. Although, I remember the first time I saw a serious man and I thought, oh, is that it? I am disappointed. And then I found mm. out later, because I wasn't really up in my Bible readings, that it's meant to be the story of Job. And like with that structure, and go back, like oh right, I get it now. Uh, So maybe there is something more to it there beyond simply, you know, cynically subverting expectations and what you'd expect to be like kind of happy endings or anything like that for some of the stories. The Tim Blake Nelson thing is probably the most enjoyable section, and. The best showcase for the Coens' amazing ability to write just insanely what well, ridiculous, also awesome, <laughs> awesome dialogue. Oh yes, nobody writes dialogue like the Coen yeah. brothers.
2: There are there were at least three moments in that section where I laughed out loud and I yeah. was as happy as a clam, and I never thought I would hear myself saying this, but I genuinely, by the end of this, I genuinely just wished it had been ninety minutes of that of that character and Tim Blake Nelson
1: yeah I'm not put off by Tim Blake Nelson because what I immediately thought of when he appeared at the start of the film oh brother. was Oh Brother We Are There yeah and he's fantastic in that um, when he's been in other films I've not particularly liked or disliked him that I can recall maybe maybe in Minority Report he feels a bit out of place mm. but he's a kind of creepy guy in that and it sort of works I guess he's meant to be but um, yeah for yeah for that section obviously I was, yeah, like you Craig laughing so much great performance, um, funny songs and just that uh, the Coen Brothers dialogue's amazing. The Liam Neeson section, incredibly dark um, <laughs> and cynical, but you know, leave um, my,
2: my My other half was genuinely offended by that <laughs> section and I kind
0: of understand Why? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a bit of a gear change in terms of tone as well uh which is no doubt the intent but well coming it as is, it does so after,
2: after that second segment which is obviously as bleak as you like but had had the good grace to be
0: humorous <laughs> with it yeah. but yeah when he when he looks at that rock it's like oh this isn't gonna end well <laughs> <laughs> oh, no I don't want this yeah. uh,
1: um steven root is always fantastic value um, also another returning mm-hmm. person from old brotherway art there too who did mm-hmm. a great performance in that. he's really fun in the james franco section the tom Wait section though, it was probably the nicest looking it was just it's yeah. gorgeous gorgeous um setting definitely and like he's digging for some gold but, oh oh that happened is that it yeah well i guess that's that's se- it that's that section then <laughs> okay uh, so that's probably the, was the low point was that essentially like
2: I, don't know. I, I, I at least that. rooted for his character. I, I at least mm. was glad with the resolution of that. Oh, even, yeah. Even, even yeah, though I was... thought there's literally no value in this as a piece of as a piece <laughs> oh, yeah. of film. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> and and it needed to be ten, possibly fifteen minutes shorter than it was. It, that, was, that, was five minutes, that was five minutes of film stretched out to 20, 25 minutes. No word of a yeah. lie. No point to that whatsoever.
1: Yeah, um, but the, the section on the Oregon Trail too, that was... I do know, that's probably... I think that's the longest section. Yes, it is. I actually... Probably the one I enjoyed second most. I just thought mm. the characters were interesting. and interesting. That's um, it. It was super engaging. And... Um, yeah.
2: And your fellow, what? Sorry, what did I say his name was again? Um, he's got the most awesome name ever, um, Bill Heck. Bill Heck's character, uh, and Zoe Kazans, but especially Bill hecks such a such an interesting character, just affable. Yeah. I was just really, uh, and, you know, in the in the midst of all these terribly sort of chauvinistic characters, and whatnot. He was a real sort of beacon of just decency and whatnot. I'm like, oh, I hope nothing terrible happens to this guy, and well, it doesn't, but well, <laughs> um, it, also sort of does. it also sort of does, yeah. And that was frustrating because that I felt that there, there was an entire film that could have been made there.
1: Yeah. Um, just yeah. weird. So yeah, Matt, I think the idea behind this was originally it was meant to be a series rather than a film, wasn't it? Um, well, I keep reading conflicting reports of that
2: because the Cones have said, no, this is always the way it was meant to have been brought to you. But then every other... Every other piece article I read, on it suggests that yes, up until earlier this year, it was supposed to be an anthology TV series. So it I don't was know.
0: Always going to be a trilogy?
2: Yes, <laughs>
0: yes. <laughs> um.
2: I, d- I don't know. Who, I don't know who to believe. I don't know why the Coens would feel the need to lie, but there's enough um, differing opinion out there to suggest that
1: maybe it's something though, like like that was always what they wanted to do, but it was all, Netflix were always well, no, we'll do it if you do it is this way, or maybe mm-hmm. something like that. It's more like not so well, much what was always going to be like this is what they wanted this is what the people were giving the money
2: ultimately I'm glad they got to do it this way because I don't think there's anything near enough there to have sustained a six part series
1: No, the running times are so sort of... A
2: couple of of those sections start to feel interminable as they are, never mind doubling or
1: tripling the length of them.
0: I I could have done to see a few more holes being dug.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I I really, really enjoyed it. I think I will watch this again, but again, I'll watch anything by the Coen Brothers again, apart from the Lady Killers. Yeah. um, (laughs) Which I did make the mistake of watching again last year, I think. It was the first time I'd seen it since it was in the cinema. Oh... Oh, well, this is worse than I remember. No, mm-hmm. I'm glad I'm going back to like just like yeah. Let's just write our own stuff again, you know, because that's how that works.
2: Listen, a couple of minutes either side of that Archimedean solution to the problem of Clancy Brown. Um, <laughs> that is that is some of the best cinema I've witnessed, and that is some of the most that is some of the most. Sort of refreshing, and I don't know, just downright daft, just utterly enjoyable cinema that I've watched in a long, long time. And I just, I just wish there had been more of that. I don't, yeah. I don't know what the ultimately. I don't know what the purpose of this was. Not to say that everything has to have a purpose, but yeah. it, it feels like it feels like there ought to have been.
1: The name threw me as well because I had, um, I knew the name, and I had, again, I've been. It's not even worth effort. I've just been trying to avoid finding out pretty much anything about films at any point, personally. Um, I only booked the tickets for Spider-Man to the Spider-Verse because I was aware there was a new Spider-Man film coming out. Um, and there was a preview of it at Cineworld to see it like a week early. I thought, oh, that looks good. And only after I booked the tickets, I was like, oh, wait, it's the animated one I've seen the trailer for. I was thinking it was the <laughs> new one, that that's like next year, the year but after with Tom Holland. Um but that turned out to be This because that was fantastic, that film. Uh, this uh, didn't really know much, like, new Coen Brothers film, all I need to know, right? I'm there. But the, with it being called The Ballad of Buster Scots, I kind of thought it was all going to be about him.
2: Or at least bookended
1: with, yeah. Yeah, or like it's kind of like, he'd be like a storyteller. Yeah, it would and be. I mean, a, an a narrator, song in yeah. each one to introduce it. And I would have really enjoyed that because they did mm-hmm. such a good job with the songs in his section. Yep. I actually would have liked that. Um, yeah, or I say a bookend, was kind of what I was expecting. So, the fact there wasn't actually more of Tim Blake Nelson is a wee bit of a disappointment. I just, I really enjoyed it because I love the Coen Brothers and there's not a lot they can do wrong for me. Um, again, lady killers aside.
0: Yeah, I would say for all my sort of niggles that we're bringing up here, it, I still really, really enjoyed it. Um, yeah. And well, it's, it's definitely it's, worth watching. Yeah, it's. It, it's not, it's not the best film I've seen this year but it's, it's in the running for being one of the most entertaining films that I've seen this year, um, along with a few others on this podcast uh, that we'll get to But so it's, it's definitely well worth seeing, it's not going to change anyone's life and as I say, I don't think I'm really going to go back to at any point but yeah, hugely yeah. enjoyed my
2: time with it if they want to do this sort of thing for net and just muck about for Netflix every couple of years or something that's mm. fine I, I'm in I think yes. just when you're when you're dealing with a body of work such as theirs this slight say, got there's definitely you have to you have to understand before you go in that this is definitely going to fall into the minor category as you as you so rightly state um don't don't go expecting no country for old men or Fargo again because you ain't going to get it <laughs> uh, although although there are glimpses of that in it which is I think perhaps the most frustrating thing, even though this is the mucking about even while they're mucking about they still <laughs> Come out with some of some of the best work ever. You just kind of want them to pick that ball up and run with it, rather than yep. what it is that they were doing, whatever the hell that was. But yes, a curio. I don't think I shall probably ever go back and watch it again. If if it is, it will be for the first segment, probably. Um, or if they if they want to go back and revisit the the tale of uh, Bill Heck and Zoe Kazan, uh, I'm on board for that as a movie, to be honest with you. But um, yes.
0: Nothing really prepared us for Operation Kid Brother from our March 2019 look at James Bond
1: knockoffs. You ready for the highlights of the night? Yes. In
0: many ways, we kind of buried the lead on this podcast. I, I believe when we were sort of thrown ideas about for this, I, I stumbled across this as in a, in a web search and, well, it kind of demanded their attention. <laughs>
1: uh, so.
0: Uh, without further ado, Operation Kid Brother or OK Connery or one of a number of other titles. Or
1: Operation Double O seven or <laughs> all sorts of right on the name um yes. title on the nose the names rather. Well. Um Yes, now I was supposed to do an introduction for this and I thought about it and a large part of the conversation came to say I'm not quite sure how to. Um <laughs> So a lot of the joy of this film will come simply with talking about it rather than trying to introduce it. But I will try to tell you a little bit first before we get into down into the nitty gritty of just how mental this film is. Now, for aficionados of terrible B-movies, um, of the sort of so bad they're good type, there's quite a lot of wealth to be mined in Italy. For some reason, Italy seems to be the source of many terrible, low-budget knockoffs of American-style films. Yes, and if you're familiar with, for instance, Red Letter, Red Red Letter, Red Letter. Yes, they're, they're elite are <laughs> source Um Red Letter Media's Best of the Worst series. Uh, you will not be surprised to find a disproportionate um, number of Disproportionate yes, number of Italian films have popped up in there. They covered one that we, in fact, have covered too, which was Zombie 3, when we did our zombie episode not so long ago. That was an Italian film as well, with its strange idea that somehow the Philippines could pass for Southern California, but okay.
0: Uh, Self-propelling heads.
1: (laughs) Yes. It's that sort of level of production value and nonsense that uh, marks out a lot of them, which is weird because some of the greatest films of all time have also come from Italy. It's not like they don't know how to make good films in that country, <laughs> you know? So, it is yet another Italian film we come to here. This is a weird film. So, again, this is only five years after Doctor No came out, and as I said with Murderer's Show, it seems like a, a sub-genre of Bond parodies and rip-offs seem to spring up from nowhere quite, quite quickly. This is very much of the... Rip-off version. Oh yes. And it's honestly hard to understand how this came about. Because this is a film. And there's maybe a bit of a clue in the name OK Connery. <laughs> but this is a film that stars Lois Maxwell, who was Miss Money Penny in a lot of the Bond films, if you recall. Bernard Lee, who's M in 11 Bond films. Adolfo Celli, who was Largo in Thunderball, a Bond film. Daniela Bianchi, who was a Bond girl in From Russia With Love. I'm sensing uh, a theme here. Yeah. Um, but which Connery have they found? <laughs> and yes, also a car- somebody who played a small role in You Only Live Twice, a Bond film. Mm. Yeah. They've taken all of these people. Um, cast him in roles largely similar to the roles he played in the Eon Productions official Bond films. Mm. How these people kept their jobs with the Eon films <laughs> is honestly beyond <laughs> me. Because it's quite clearly yes. just a straight-up rip-off in every way possible. And then what they've done is they've gone, well, Sean Connery's quite famous, very possibly going to be picky, well out th- with our budget anyway. <laughs> But his brother, the plasterer, he's probably (laughs) available, right? That'll work.
0: I can't see any problems with this. Just get the plasterer in and do it.
1: (laughs) So, so Neil Connery, who was at the time working as a plasterer, is recruited. And, I mean, that may be ridiculous enough. There's mention in the film made him looking like his brother, but I honestly don't think he looks like Sean Connery at all. No. But actually, nowadays he does, weirdly enough. Mm-hmm. Current Neil Connery does, but Neil Connery I don't think he does. Um, they even seem to make that point.
0: At one point, someone suggesting he should shave off his beard so he'd look a bit more like his brother. And so he goes, yeah, no, no, I can't do I'm that very,
1: because that's too obvious. It's, I'm also, I'm also <laughs> very attached to my beard. Um, but yes, is, it's not just that they decided well, what we should do is cast Neil Connery <laughs> in this Bond knockoff they kind of make that the point of the whole film. Yes. They've cast him, the other him as point... James Bond's brother. <laughs> yes. H- hence the other name for the film, um as well as O.K. Connery and Operation Kid Brother. And I'm thinking, okay, I know the name, but they're not going to be that on the nose about it. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes, they are. And repeatedly. <laughs> this film, oh, my God, it's got this film. Um I mean... <laughs> to to quote our friend Tengushi on Twitter when I was talking about this with him a couple of days ago, is glorious fecking enigma. <laughs> and how and what? Well, I know how. Cheap cash in, right? Or why rather. But, but, but how and how are these people? And why, oh no. <laughs> so I am, I am burying my face on my hands because this film is the worst of things. Also, happily however, it is the best of things. It is the best of things. It is the worst of things. It is mostly the worst of things. It's also mostly the best of things because it's one of the worst, best, most enjoyable and most awful things I've watched in a good long time. (laughs) It's baffling and wonderful and terrible and awesome. Uh, (laughs) Sorry, I I haven't even got to the plot yet because, well, the plot. But I can't get over just how on the nose this film is about the whole Kid Brother thing. Look, if you managed to
0: find a plot in here, I applaud your (laughs) efforts. I couldn't couldn't um, find one.
1: Well, the plot is your sort of bog-standard um, Bond thing. Uh evil group called Thanatos, named after the Greek personification of death, uh, your typical Spectre analogue, have want to create some sort of microwave machine <laughs> to render all metal-based mechanisms on a planet, well, useless basically. Hmm. that's probably the most standard thing about this film is your typical megalomaniacal evil organisation type plot hmm. they're apparently going to do this because they get, and they make consistent reference to this by stealing an atomic nucleus <laughs> which uh, just it broke my mind every time they said that they want to steal an atomic nucleus They want to steal every single thing in existence that is an atom has an atomic nucleus so that's most things in existence that aren't neutrinos not just protons, that,
0: but they need to steal these atomic nucleuses and then get blind people in Marrakesh to weave them together or something.
1: I don't quite yes, understand. Yes, they're, they're weaving magic um, carpets made of atomic nuclei, which are probably made you out just by all all atoms having atomic nuclei because that's what everything. Um, so it could just be some sand um, or some air, and um, also blind people navigate by banging a stick randomly near their foot <laughs> that's what they use sticks for
0: it's a, form of a really shitty location. sonar that's how it works yeah uh,
1: I mean we're all over the place here because the film's all over the place um, so that's the plot uh, and the idea is that um, so the film starts with the most ludicrously over the top bombing of a secret agent um, <laughs> a remote controlled car for some reason Um <laughs> the most elaborate and over-the-top and unnecessary way to murder someone. The secret agent working for MI5, MI6, or whatever it actually is in this uh, film, I think they're meant to be MI6, same as Bond. Uh, They kill him. They're then going to attack um, this agent's girlfriend who he has somehow used as some sort of human USB stick and stored information (laughs) inside of her. (laughs) Um,
0: Inside her brain, we should say, in a a kind of... uh... More. Oh, yeah, of, yes. We're, we're, we're not, not talking
1: not anything sexual or anything like that. No, <laughs> it's just more of a Johnny mnemonic way, really. <laughs>
0: she's not tattooed um, a message on her kidneys or anything like that. <laughs> but she wouldn't put it oh. past the film, to be honest. but...
1: <laughs> no, we're not making any, like talking about inserting USB sticks or anything. No, we're not making um, <laughs> that sort of double entendre or anything, though. No. Yes, so she's currently under the care, this girlfriend, she's currently under the care of Dr. Neil Connery. In the film, Neil Connery plays. Doctor Neil Connery, <laughs> who is the brother of a Double O agent um, called Connery. Oh,
0: they mentioned this you several times.
1: <laughs> they mention it several times, but what oh. sets Doctor Neil Connery apart from his brother, the spy Connery, Double O, <laughs> and that's the one bit where they don't go full because they knew they would get sued. They just call him Double O something, and then it's cut off. The conversation's cut off. Is a Scottish surgeon a plastic surgeon who despite being a scottish plastic surgeon and having apparently come from edinburgh but apparently also doesn't come from edinburgh has returned to uh, they called me in from edinburgh they say at the start of the conversation at the end of that sequence i've got to return to columbia university (laughs) which is new york city but okay
0: Uh, i presume that, that has got to be a way to get around the fact that, for whatever reason, they, when they did the dubbing for this, they didn't bring Neil Connery back in and they got an American guy to dub him. So he's wandering yes. around with an American accent. Despite your only selling point for this film being the relationship between Neil Connery and Sean Connery, you've done your best to disguise the one thing that is most recognisable about Sean Connery. What are you doing, film? What, <laughs> I what is going on?
1: <laughs> I oh know it's gloriously awful it's so inept um but that's exactly where i'm going scott so it was like they kind of, they brought me in from edinburgh why do you sound like an american um and then they make several references to him being scottish he's a scottish brother at one point he's in the middle of what's again meant to be monaco in highland dress in an archery competition <laughs> in monaco because he's scottish despite being an american clearly an American with an American voice because Americans have an American voice he sees he's an American he's an American what are you doing oh, so I'm getting loud and shrill because this film has broken my brain but in a kind of a glorious way that I, I appreciate because it's so I've never seen anything like this I don't think uh, yeah it's uh, so they bring him in oh, he's like he's treating it I've got so lost here but it's oh, so I, I, I just we need to talk about everything Scott so it's wonderful He's treating this girlfriend the human US walking USB stick who doesn't know she has this information. He is somehow compelled to do it because apparently the government can do that. <laughs> they can make you be a spy. Yes. Yes. Especially even when you you actually you're employed in the United States not Britain. It's like you've not even your residence in the UK anymore but okay at least of this film's problems. The power of the Queen
0: compels you. The power of
1: the Queen compels you. The
0: power of the Queen compels you. Okay I'm a spy. Basically how it went.
1: (laughs) Yeah. um, So they draft him in um, unwillingly to go undercover to investigate um, Thanatos Thanatos, the great organization that wants to, as we say, steal an atomic nucleus, <laughs> you just kind of stick the word atomic in and then think that means some sort of nuclear weapon or something. That's not how that works. But they're not well organized, or at least they're not very secretive anyway, because. And it's such a rip off perspective too, because the head of the organization is called Alpha instead of um, what number one Blofeld is, isn't he? Yeah. Um, there's, a, I mean, everything's a reference because there's a character called Lottie something. It's clearly a reference to Lottie Lenya, hmm. um, who played Rosa Klebb in the Bond yeah, films. Yeah. And Adolfo Cellis, Mister Thayer is beta. and it's like, yeah, okay. So, you know, admittedly, there's a limited number of ways to do that, but still. And th- don't I'm honestly surprised there wasn't a white cat. Yes. Yes. I genuinely surprised <laughs> by that. It's the only thing they didn't straight up copy. Yeah, their plan is called Operation Blackmail. <laughs> as I say, this film doesn't know how to not be on the nose. <laughs> Operation Evil Plan. <laughs> yeah. Um so yeah. They bring him in to go undercover, as I say, at one point as a blind man working in a factory in Morocco who's making nuclear carpets. <laughs> Now, I, I, you, I,
0: might, you might think, Drew, that a plastic surgeon would not have the tools necessary for the covert operation, but it turns out that Neil Connery does, because Dr Neil Connery, not only is he an expert plastic surgeon, of course, he's, he, he's an expert lip reader who, who, I who barely um, needs line of sight to actually understand people across the room, and of course... I don't know what- Olympic-level hypnotist. <laughs> Olympic-level hypnotist, who can hypnotise anyone simply by folding his hands together and staring at them gently, and thus comp- compelling them into a, a world of doing whatever the hell he likes. And that would seem to be more a trope that you'd put towards the, the evil guys rather than the good guys. You know, mind control tends not to be one of the hero kind of hero's traits, you know? Um, just one of the many ways in the film is very strange.
1: So, yeah, he he he's a plastic surgeon who's a lip reader and a hypnotist too, all of which will come into play. Make no mistake about this, all of these will be incredibly important.
0: And it's good that he knows an archery team, because he does need to assault a castle at the end. And what better? What better than an archery team on horseback? <laughs> Hand you that.
1: Yes. <laughs> oh, this film. Oh, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. It's a gift. Um... <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, he's starting to explore um, these things, um, which takes him from Monaco to Malaga, um, somewhere else. Uh, this is an Italian film. I'm thinking it's a lot of it is shot in Italy, although I think some of it was actually shot near Malaga. Mm-hmm. But there's not much sense of place in this film because there's a bit where some United States military police officers are driving along a road. <laughs> And yes. for a good 20 minutes, um, I'm thinking, But well, why are they in Spain? <laughs> and I can only assume they weren't in Spain, they were in the United States, But it's really not obvious. Um, yeah. But this is how somehow, I think that's something to do with how they steal this atomic nucleus.
0: Yes, by, by the most obvious way possible. I mean, I don't think yes, you get um, a more direct plan.
1: Yeah, so uh, the plan here, right, is that for some reason, in what is presumably the United States... Because there are, it's a military, inst- uh, it's a nuclear fuel, nuclear power station or something, guarded by US military police, but the a bunch of women appear dressed as flamenco dancers, but they get onto a bus which says something about, well, almost like flamenco dancers, they're more like dancehall dancers from the Old West, I guess that's what they're meant to be, because there's an Old West logo on the bus, but yeah, they... So all of these women in the middle of the desert. This is um, Mm. this is why I was like, this looks like Malaga. Why? Sorry, it's it's broken my brain. It really has I can barely string a sentence together because it's so weird. Um, (laughs) These women, and then step into the middle of the road to stop the military jeep full of MPs and there's a sort of military bus truck behind them. I guess it has regular soldiers in it, Mm. and the MPs go. Well, all these women in the road, that seems totally legit and natural. Let's just go with them, I guess. Um,
0: I presumed um, they were trying to sort of flag them down to... because they were pre- I think they were pretending that their bus had broken down and they were trying I to would get, get so, help. But it's, but it's not particularly clear, either the yeah, location or anything that was going on in that
1: particular yes, scene. This, I think, leads to them finding new nuclear carpet making material or
0: first They found the nuclear, th- they found the atomic threads and uh, now could yes. make the um, atomic carpet <laughs> that um, would then go inside Ned's atomic dustbin. Which
1: is, yes. Um, so the action then moves to Morocco, where, as we mentioned <laughs> because our thoughts and our description of the film is, is all over the place as the film is, so blame it, not us. Neil Connery... <laughs> Neil Connery, because they keep mentioning I'm being Connery too. Ah. <laughs> it's not even once. It's so on the nose. The, the film ends with him saying, you were almost as good as your brother. <laughs> Shh. Sorry, I, I need to make another mistake because I want to mention this before I forget Because as if all of that wasn't on the nose enough, Scott, did you notice the bit where um, one of the characters says, to, I think to Neil Connery, um, you read too many novels by Fleming? <laughs> yes, <laughs> Talk about wearing your influence on your sleeve. <laughs> uh, so yes, he goes to Morocco where some terrible acting happens because he tries telling the blind man who's in the special room where um, he's working on the <laughs> nuclear carpets, like he's working with nuclear material. What? You're working with nuclear material? What? You're working with nuclear material? And he says, as quick as I was about to say it, Ah, <laughs> oh, quick, they're, they're trying to poison us. This must be we have the source. Let's get out of here. Let's go. Ah. Uh. <laughs> It's so bad. <laughs> it's the worst, but also the best, Scott. I don't think I've been this entertained by a film in the <laughs> ages. Yeah, I, I'm honestly, there's not much of an exaggeration how quickly I said largely what they said, and that it, it's some terrible attitude. Well, that take was fine, let's go with that then.
0: <laughs> if anything, you're substantially more coherent because I had to listen to that about four times if you could work out what the hell it's going. <laughs>
1: Yeah, um, and then he is kidnapped by Adolfo Celli and forced to do plastic surgery on the henchman who, from the beginning, made me think very strongly of Stanley Baxter and I could not get that thought <laughs> out of my head. So Stanley Baxter, Mr Magica, um henchman, <laughs> he's to perform surgery on him because he's supposed to be taking the place of Alpha because Beta, Mr Thea, Adolfo Celli, definitely not Largo, wants to... <laughs> and take over Thanatos and then he hypnotises him to jump through a window in a scene which made me snort with laughter because it was so ridiculous (laughs) Um, but you knew the hypnotism was going to come back into it and (laughs) then I can't even remember how the film ends now my thoughts are all over the place (laughs) Uh, so but still he manages to trick Alpha and kill him he becomes the boss and then well, uh, how does uh, it end Scott? I actually can't
0: remember (laughs) Well, at some point, Adolfo Selli, uh, having created the nuclear carpet or whatever the hell it was, um, they've got their weapon working, so they go off
1: to some oh, facility yes. where they start... Switzerland or somewhere, isn't yeah, it?
0: Where they put on their fabulous red pleather um, <laughs> jumpsuits that look a bit like a thriller video, and he's... I bet. I bet. <laughs> he's just a little bit like it. And then And then... Um, some stuff happens, and I'm not quite sure how. It ended. <laughs> to be honest, I've kind of, i would kind of lost uh, the the will to think at that point. Um, well, there's, um, there's, lots of archers, and then it's some... oh yes, yes, it's in the it, castle. So the 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 the, ca- the archery team have to go up on horseback to provide a distraction for Bonds. <laughs> while he sneaks in the back door and blows it up somehow by the power of plastic surgery, I can't quite remember <laughs> how. But I, and
1: lip breathing, yes, somehow uh, he hypnotizes the wall after reading the lips to know what's going on and blows it up <laughs> and then he has a face off with definitely not Largo um <laughs> where Largo thinks he's got the better of Bond but he's only shot him in the arm yes. whereas Bond has fired an arrow into his heart and he is dead now <laughs> um, and um, my brain has also died because it's just it, it cannot take it process any more of this, which is why I don't remember the end very well <laughs> other than the bit where he Manages to hypnotize Bernard Lee by putting his fingers together and staring at him intently for three and a half seconds. Yes. <laughs> That's um, how it works. Yeah, uh, uh Um uh. Yeah.
0: I did not understand why any single thing in this film was happening. And that's normally a bad thing. <laughs> but I think it, it works to the strengths of Operation Kid Brother, which doesn't have a lot of them. So <laughs> it's good that it's got one, one suit to keep hammering on. That, <laughs> that being the, the the desperate, desperate
1: attempts to link it to 007. And, I mean... It, and not <laughs> subtle is not a word in this um these filmmakers' vocabulary, Scott. Yeah. Um subtle is something they actively reel against apparently if they were to be aware of the word at all.
0: <laughs> I mean I'm sure at some point in the past we've we've used the term stunt casting. I mean this is just stunt casting as the entire basis of a film. And, and the
1: entire point, I think.
0: It's super strange. I mean, it, it, it's just such an obvious, I mean, I, presumably it's just an attempt at a, a kind of cheap cash-in. Uh, let's, let's knock something out as quickly as they can.
1: And uh, Oh, there's no doubt that's what it is. It's it, like Bond's really this point. Yeah. 67, um, that's round about the time of like, You Only Live Twice, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's, Bond's get probably big every year. Bond was bigger than the year before at that point. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's a cheap cash-in. It's just that how they've done it and who they got to do it is the incredible thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, you, you could do a cheap cash-in in a very obvious way. Um, this really isn't that way. And, uh, I mean, everything to do with the casting is... There's, there's such a deliberate deliberateness to it that it's just so brazen that you can't help but be charmed <laughs> by it. I, yeah. um, but the script is... I just... I don't understand how they got this script together. I mean, I've seen a fair few incomprehensible Italian films, but this, this is worse than all of them. It's like, you know, when you're... you're training like machine learning or artificial intelligence and they just read like a thousand news articles then start trying to make their own ones synthesize something out of that it's like that for a script it's yeah it it just it's It's a fever dream yeah it it is sort of if you looked at it from far enough away it it kind of looks like a bond script it it kind of does the same sort of things but it it doesn't make any sense
1: it hits the major beats of a bond film but without any of those, very... without any of those being connected in any real way, <laughs> yes, I know I I'm the right author with the right people, yes um yeah, because by that even by that point, Bond had already got formulaic, but um, so it's like it's like they they understand what a Bond film is, but mm. not how it's put together, yes <laughs> it's like they're trying to infer a sausage from the list of ingredients <laughs> yes without really understanding the the thing as a whole. Yes. It's, ah, I mean, it's awful. It's also brilliant and awful and brilliant. I'm really glad you found this because (laughs) I don't think I've talked this enthusiastically about any film in this podcast ever (laughs) Um, because I'm just so baffled. And again, I'll mention, I, I don't understand how these people got employed by Eon Productions again. Um, Yeah. They were quite litigious, even from the beginning. Um, Yeah. And there was, like, the acrimonious fallouts between Harry Saltzman and Cummy Broccoli. Mm -hmm. And there was the... Then they had all the lawsuits, like, Wolf Mankiewicz and stuff, that ended up making Never Say Never Again. And they were in court all the time. Mm -hmm. How did this one get through? And how did they not just, like, say to the people... Oh, you've burned the bridges now. What well, we'll you yeah. again, Bernard Lee? Yeah, I, I really don't know. I, I couldn't really find any
0: particular evidence of how successful this was. I mean, it's, it's almost like this was some made-for-TV um, Italian thing that sort of snuck out somewhere and has kind of lingered on in the memory of people. But I mean, it's, it's not all that well remembered because if, if you look at the, uh, I mean, even the Wikipedia page, which is normally the home of the needlessly detailed recap for everything, and there's barely anything on it about this film uh, which probably is what it deserves to be fair but um, uh, it just seemed to have gone down a memory hole and it took a bit of tracking down and
1: um, It's
0: it's so strange I mean all I can assume is this came out like pretty much entirely in Italy and it didn't really get anywhere else so Ian maybe just gave it a pass but it's it's weird that something is so litigious. I mean, seemingly need, needfully litigious because there were so many kind of claims on that uh, that IP that they needed to kind of keep fighting it all the time. But that they did nothing about something as blatant as this is really
1: baffling. It's not like I don't believe there's a, any way they wouldn't have been aware of it because are people that are in it absolutely. But, like, yeah. some, yeah. but it's not like it was completely unknown or anything because it was reviewed at the time. By right. the New York Times, by Bosley Crowther in the New York Times, <laughs> and also by Variety.
0: Um, yeah, so it wasn't it wasn't completely anonymous at the time. Okay, yeah, right, right.
1: Yeah, so like it, it's Variety, it's the trades, you mm-hmm. know, of of that industry. Copy broccoli that must have known about it. It's something like stuck uh, under the radar for Bernard Lee and Lois Maxwell and yeah. stuff. Um, Unless it was
0: considered so embarrassingly bad they didn't want to even give it the the oxygen of publicity because I can't imagine this was successful uh, because it's really bad. And it's only fun when you can dissect it in a sort of vaguely alcohol-fueled discussion with friends. But I I don't think... If you sat down and watched the film in isolation, uh, you would really get all that much from it. But just knowing that there's something... To, to actually discuss with people it's it's such a strange curiosity that, that kind of makes it fun
1: yeah um, absolutely
0: <laughs> but I mean if you judged by its own quality in and of itself I mean it's it's awful um, <laughs> I d- uh, but then again I, I thought it was too old to enjoy films that were awful just as a sort of you know the so bad it's good sort of thing but this this really kind of knocks it up a level so i'm glad it's kind of rekindled that i can i can now enjoy awful films again is just just and how bad and how baffling they are
1: yes. i honestly wish that I had lasted one film longer um, yes. which we'll, we'll quickly get to but um as yes, i had that thing too i mm. thought i'd lost that ability to ironically enjoy stuff but um yeah so it just I, i'm on the wikipedia page just now scott just to see what if there was there really isn't much information is there and, no um, no but the, the last line I should describe using this is talking about the reception. As a James Bond ripoff, the reaction to the film is mixed. Ben Child from The Guardian called it one of the worst movies made for the genre. In contrast, Andy Roberts from The Daily Telegraph and Tom Cole for Radio Times considered it to be one of the best. What? Here, but, but here's the thing they're both right. <laughs> well, they're, all three of them are right. But, and wrong at the same time. <laughs> Yeah, it's largely how I felt it all of that film when I was pissing myself <laughs> laughing actually. But it's um, I mean, yes.
0: Suffice to say, Neil Connery returned to his career as a plasterer, <laughs> and I think we're all happier for that. <laughs> in the grand scheme of things.
1: Yeah, I think Sean Connery used to be like a milkman or a yeah postman or something at some point, like before he made it big. Um, well, I just started with a small job, so but but there's a reason he didn't have to return to that. Yes. <laughs> Not so much for his brother, unfortunately. <laughs>
0: I, fe- I feel uh, there's so much more to say about this film, but I think we've probably said all we need to for it.
1: Honestly, though, I, I just I think that people ought to track this down because it's... Again, I'm going to go back to um, Tengushi's comment and his glorious fecking enigma. Yes. <laughs> uh, I, I have cleaned the language up a little there, as you can mm-hmm. imagine. But, uh, it is... It's baffling, but in that properly entertaining way. Like, why, how, why, what, what, how, who, what, why, where, when? (laughs) Yes, I I am thoroughly, thoroughly grateful that you discovered this and making up your list for this episode, Scott, because I've not had as much fun (sighs) with the film in quite some time. Yes.
0: Uh, Despite it being dreadful, um, everyone should watch it. Um, You can't deny that. It's
1: an awful film, but it's like, Properly entertainingly awful. If,
0: if you're listening and you can't get a hold of it, hit me up on Twitter, I'll I'll, I'll sort you out. But um <laughs> this is
1: Nudge Nudge wink wink. Th-
0: th- I, might, I might fall off the back of the internet somewhere near you, but uh um, yeah, it's uh it it it's certainly a thing that I watched <laughs> and, <laughs> and spoke about for what an hour. <laughs> yeah. It's I don't know. And I think none of us really know about operation Good brother uh, <laughs> but, um let's let's all just not know together and uh, join the harmonious things of what what why is there ceiling guns hell <laughs> oh, I forgot about ceiling guns why am I getting most invested in the power struggles of the evil organization? I don't surely this should be the other way around. Surely shouldn't I be more invested in, more invested in the hero than Largo? I don't uh eh. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> it was an experience and I'm not sure we're, we're any better or worse for it but we're certainly changed by it and uh, no, nothing will be the same going forward so that's yeah. that's a thing and how often can you say that about films yeah. in a stupid way
1: <laughs> yeah every time I, th- I stop for a moment to think that something else occurs to me too this is another film that's an absolute crime against fashion at some point some woman's wearing a hat that appears to be the nest of a tinsel flamenco <laughs> um, <laughs>
0: because curiously was the name of my 80s synth band (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, and she also I mean I don't I'm not trying to make fun of people's names or anything but there were certain names that are more likely to be found in films or whatever than others um, because they sound sexy or something and for the same are more appealing and cool cooler, whatever it is and those are fashions that change of course but there's um there are some names that also you don't tend to get for the same reason. <laughs> for example, in this case, the glamorous evil woman is called Mildred. That's <laughs> not a glamorous name. <laughs> and if your name's Mildred, fair enough. <laughs> but come on.
0: And it's not like that's a name that's recently gone out of fashion.
1: <laughs> like that. name out of fashion <laughs> in the 1890s. <laughs>
0: <laughs> April 2019 saw us taking a look at some 80s films aimed at kids, including Batteries Not Included So, continuing the science fiction
1: theme with Batteries Not Included Drew, what's that all about? Now, batteries Not Included is a delightful little tale of how some cute little aliens looking like miniaturised versions of the classic flying saucer style UFOs come to the aid of some people in a tale reminiscent of the elves and the shoemaker Well, I say delightful. I mean horrifying. (laughs) At least when you add in the poverty, dementia, corporate thuggery, (laughs) immoral businessmen, sports-derived brain damage, assault, stillborn babies, arson and attempted murder. Yeah, but apart from that... Cheery, cheery, cheery. (laughs) In a plot point, lifted from Herbie Rides Again and reused in Up, Pixar's Brad Bird, part of the creative team on Up, was one of the writers for this film. An unscrupulous real estate magnate finds that his plans for his towering new development in New York's East Village are endangered by the final holdouts. The tenants are the final extant tenement building. These tenants are the pregnant, soon-to-be single mother Marisa, Elizabeth Pena, Artist Mason, Dennis Butsi Caris, simple-minded superintendent Harry, Frank McRae, and Frank and Faye Riley, Hume Cronin and Jessica Tandy the oldest residents and proprietors of the cafe house on the building's ground floor. They have been bribed and harassed, but won't leave. And now, with permit and tax deadlines looming, the developer sent in Michael Carmine's Carlos, a thug who aspires to upward mobility to force them out. After their restaurant is trashed, a dejected Frank considers leaving for a retirement home, something he does not desire to do, but considers maybe for the best. Especially as face suffering from advanced dementia, during the night though visitors arrive from outer space, sentient metal-based life forms who are looking for power and supplies in order to start a family. These little fellows are dab hands at repair and fix up much of the damage done by Carlos and his goons, giving the tenants renewed hope and new allies. As the cute little extraterrestrials help out in the restaurant and around the building things take a far darker turn than you might expect, with revelations of dead children, now and in the past, fears for soon-to-be-born children, the difficulties of watching your partner being lost to the perniciousness that is dementia, the poor, elderly and vulnerable being largely abandoned by society, and if that weren't enough, a greedy businessman willing to have someone's home burnt to the ground so they don't have to pay more tax and not caring much whether or not they're at home when the fire starts. There's a bit more too, in this children's film about sweet little toy spaceships. <laughs> for the most part, the effects stand up. There's some really charming puppetry and models used for the fixits, as the aliens are dubbed, and aside from some terrible fake photographs in the opening sequence, made to look even worse when juxtaposed with genuine photographs of Cronin and Tandy, married in real life for more than 50 years, The only real problem is with the matting, which, to be fair, still has the potential to look incredibly dodgy today. But it's the story that's compelling. It would be very easy for this to be corny or cheesy, and it's perhaps Dennis Butsikarisi's tortured artist that comes closest to breaking the tone, not aided by the cartoonish take on his electrocution. But for the most part, the cast play this earnestly with Cronin and Tandy adding real gravitas, and even Michael Carmine allowed to imbue the broadly written Carlos with a little depth in character progression. I'm quite pleased that we finished with batteries not included, though I'll admit that's not entirely chance, as for me it's the best film we've talked about in this episode. Like the best family films, this works on a level for children and a different level for adults, with some crossover, though given its themes and topics it definitely tends much more towards the adult side of things. By which I probably mean, cute little robots aside, this is probably horrifying for kids. (laughs) Though I have no recollection of that from my childhood, so maybe that other stuff just sails over your head if you're otherwise unfamiliar. So, what am I saying? Well, for me anyway, the best kids film in this selection is very much the one really not for kids. What a conclusion!
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, before you'd put this forward for for this episode, I, I, I guess I would never have really thought of Batteries Not Included as a kids film, in particular. I'm not quite sure why, I can only presume it's because I remembered it and remembered the content of it and thought that can't possibly be a kid's film, um, but it's not wildly dissimilar I suppose from uh, E.T. which is all I also watched this part of this just to get a sort of frame of reference because... I don't know, there's always a part of my brain that thinks that E.T. is a kids movie for kids and I shouldn't love it, but it is just really fantastic. And of the films we talked to, this is the closest that's in that league, Obviously, um, well, there's the, the Ampland uh, Spielberg executive producer involvement. I don't know quite how... Uh, involved he was with the production of this, but this is this is Spielberg quality. Um, I would say. Um, no, let's
1: not forget Spielberg was also involved with the Goonies, so it's not doesn't uh, work.
0: That's that's true. And uh, <laughs> Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull. Um, yes, but anyway, uh, of of good Spielberg. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is up there with it. To be honest with you, I, I absolutely love this. Uh, I hadn't seen it in ages, and to be honest, it's something I'd not even really thought about. In a good long time either, um, which is a real disservice to it because it's absolutely fantastic. Um, no,
1: nor had I until that podcast I mentioned right at the introduction, mm-hmm. Scott. That's that's what brought it back to mind, um, and I thought, oh, I should revisit. That's like, oh boy, this is dark.
0: <laughs> yeah, and not just dark, but it's really, really well crafted uh, yeah, with some yeah. really, sort of, really great character work and a really great story underpinning it all, and. Um, Yes, it's perhaps a bit simplistic but it's it, it's in terms of the, the kind of overarching narrative but it touches on so many kind of real deep human uh, traits and emotions that it, mm-hmm. it's, it, it's surprisingly deep for something that is basically about aliens coming to fix things but it's not really about that at all and uh, it, it's a really quite kind of, dark and twisted and complicated work in a number of regards mm. and it's really, really, really good. I don't know if this is just us, but um, i I really had not really been considering this at all uh, as a as a kind of top tier film in quite some time. And I think that's really doing it a great disservice. It is a really well put together and a really well thought out uh, bit of filmmaking that uh, deserves to be gay, that deserves a lot of attention on
1: it. And if yeah. that hasn't been getting it, then it really should. You said you hadn't really considered this as a kids' film. I did because I remember watching it as a kid, which mm. that that helps a lot. Um, and I remember <laughs> little robots and things, but I don't remember from all of those years ago the the other content, or at least the real kind of the tone of the content.
0: Yeah, it's like it, it's a film that has a stillborn alien in it. I mean, <laughs> where? So I on,
1: because of because of the film, sorry, the sort of podcast that I mentioned, I watched it again at that point. And like because because i remembered so little of that that tone yeah. the darker stuff and, and i excuse me and i realized oh yeah this is actually really good so going to it for this episode i knew that it was really good yeah, actually, yeah. why um when i was putting together the the list of films for this this was the first one in this is actually yes. the one i really right. wanted to talk about because yeah. i knew how good it was and how surprising it was to me to find it it was so good what i'm just really pleased about is you feel the same Yes, yes, that has really um, pleased me because I was slightly concerned. It's like, oh, James, I hope it's not just me. But no, it's really heartening to hear that you've you've um, enjoyed it as much as I did.
0: No, it's head and shoulders above everything I uh, was spoken to you. There's there's films here that I've, that I've really enjoyed, um, but. They're just enjoyable films for the most part. Yeah, Jurassic um,
1: th- had really solid, enjoyable, good characters and stuff, but yeah, it doesn't compare to this, does it?
0: Yeah, no. Um, thematically and the way it's shot, the way that it's executed, um, the performances, uh, this is on a entirely different level and it is really, really great. And I'm, uh, I'm very thankful that you have uh, this has been added to the list because um, I probably would not have thought about this film again possibly ever um, although presumably I would because I'm subscribed to Perfect Waste of Podcast, uh, Waste of Time podcast but I'm well well behind in my listening um, so I'll probably get to it eventually um, but uh, this is a really great film that deserves an awful lot more of attention than I'd been giving it certainly and um, presumably in that regard if you're anything like me you should be giving it so yes um, definitely give this a rewatch if you're not done so um, I I had definitely seen this film. It's one of the films that I remembered because I remember those cute little, um, almost Smash Alien type robots, and
1: there's a wee bit of the yeah. Smash Alien to them, yeah. Yeah,
0: so I did. I did remember those quite clearly, but I just remembered like a still frame of those robots and going, "Oh, they're cute," and. <laughs> Apparently, nothing else about everything around it, and uh, yeah, it, it does make it an, an awful, uh, an awful lot more of enjoyable film. It's not just a film with cute little aliens in it. It's also a film with some uh, really deep messaging and uh, some terrific performances, uh, both from Joseph uh, Katandi and uh, Hume Cronin. Cronin, uh, yeah, really touching, uh, really heartfelt touch turns from all of them. As you mentioned, all oh, even the the kind of minor throwaway characters get something good to do. The 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 guys that should just be the the hired thugs, the muscle of it, even get even them get a moment to um, sort of try and redeem themselves and uh, become better persons towards the end of it. Uh, yeah.
1: yeah, it's I, I find the films actually quite hard on Carlos because yes, he's an unpleasant person and he's he's intimidating these people to force them out of their home, but he's the one like when they've. Towards the end of the film, when the arsonist gets brought in to replace him because Carlos has failed, yeah, it's Carlos is the one that asks, "Is anybody in?" Yeah, it was like clearly the arsonist hasn't doesn't care. He hasn't actually checked. Um, and then it's Carlos at risk his own life to save Jessica Tandy, and then he tries to do the right thing. Of like all this time, she's been thinking that she's he's her son.
0: Mm, Yeah.
1: And then that, okay, there's almost a heartbreaking moment when, she, when he tries that to save her, and she realises he's oh no, he isn't. I like, yeah, ah, yeah. and he doesn't get a break <laughs> at the end either. So he's like, this is a horrible thug character, but I kind of feel sympathy for him at the end too because he he's tried to do the right thing in the end. Yes, um, and then not once but twice because it happens in the the hospital too. And that, mm-hmm. that incredibly touchy moment when she just breaks down in Hugh McConnell's shoulder. Yeah, um, it's. Um, he doesn't get like a good payoff. But almost everybody else in the film gets a satisfying payoff, and he doesn't. And maybe doesn't deserve it, but there's surprising depth in there. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh,
0: it's uh, it is really great. It's it's uh, unexpectedly become one of my favourite films. I I will need to go back and uh, revise certain lists that I don't actually keep. But um,
1: uh, yeah. I'm so genuinely pleased that you've enjoyed it as much as I did. That's really I was concerned about that. Not overly concerned, because I know you've got a good taste, but um, <laughs> so I like, like, I've put this in here because I, I know how good this is and I'm, I'm going to finish on this and like, um, but I don't know, you like it, so that's good. That's yeah, good
0: no, absolutely finishing off on a high, I would say. We'll round things off with this review of the barely describable Mandy from our October
1: 2018 intermission episode. So let's move on to what in many ways I think may be the highlight of this podcast, it may also be the lowlight of this podcast.
0: Yeah, it's, it's hard to make your mind up really, isn't it?
1: <laughs> yes, um, because I'm not convinced anybody involved that made their mind <laughs> up in anything in particular. This is, well, it's a thing. <laughs> yes. So having been quite worried last night that I had to try and explain what this thing was, I am pleased to find that no, we had in fact changed after our initial discussion that I was doing this, that you were doing it and I had simply forgotten. So I worried for nothing. But uh, (laughs) Scott, explain Mandy to, well, me to begin with and the (laughs) listeners afterwards.
0: Yeah, so there's there's quite the buzz about Mandy amongst the weird film Twitter, which we've been known to hang out occasionally, um, so much so that it kind of leaked into the mainstream. As much as something like this can, I suppose. So, what's the deal with Panos Cosmatos' second outing, a mere eight years after his debut? Well, I'm not completely sure, to be honest, but let's try and work through this together, shall we? Let's workshop (laughs) it. Nick Cage's Red Miller is a lumberjack, and he's okay. For a short while, anyway. Uh, Living in a remote cabin with his artsy girlfriend, Andrea Riesborough's Mandy, the unconventional Mm -hmm. pair seem very much in love and happy. For a short while, anyway. Uh, Q cult leader Jeremiah Sand, played by Linus Roach's appearance, uh, taking a passing fancy to Mandy and issuing orders to his assorted hangers on, freaks and geeks, to procure her for some crazy, mystical, nonsense reasons that he may or may not believe, but his followers certainly do gang, including three Hellraiser-esque bikers who are, for a short while anyway, introduced as actual blood-drinking demons, Uh, bring Mandy back to their lair, but even after a drug-addled indoctrination, she's not compliant with their wishes. The obvious next step? Incinerate her in front of a helpless red and leave him for dead. However, he doesn't die, and with the added indignity of them ripping his favourite shirt, is enough to set them off on a roaring rampage of revenge. Stopping off at Bill Duke's home to pick up some murder supplies. He's told of the rumours of how dangerous this lot are, in case he needed more warning than he'd already witnessed. And hints are thrown around about Red's past that imply some some of the particular set of skills that will make him a nightmare for people that burn his loved ones to death in front of him. And so begins the cavalcade of vengeance, and framed like that, Mandy sounds like a fairly standard revenge film. (laughs) It is not. (laughs) Where to start... Um, Visually, maybe the easiest. It's quite the most aggressively graded film I've ever seen, making Suspiria feel like a muted exercise in restraint. It's <laughs> a disorientating deluge of colour overlays that this by turns disgusting and pretty and distracting and engaging. It's really quite strange, uh, but perhaps most notably, it's a Nick Cage turn that sets, or at least comes very close to setting, a new high water mark for full Nick Cage. His transformation from content hippy to frothing madman makes for a remarkable set of scenes, culminating in the bathroom meltdown you may have seen on your Twitter account, uh, with the remaining hour or so being no less memorable, particularly when combined with the extreme visuals on display.' it makes what would otherwise be a series of slightly odd vignettes of violence become something truly memorable and remarkable albeit in ways that I still cannot yet work out if should be sorted into a bucket marked genius or a bucket marked abysmal now I'll say this it's clearly far from perfect cult leader Linus Roach in particular being a non-entity that did not make for compelling viewing in the slightest and the half hourish mm-hmm. stretch where he's given rain in the scenes with the cult members and the deduction of Mandy and so on came quite close to exhausting my patience at about two hours, this film is half an hour too long and it's this half hour in particular Uh, in particular when there's no motivation, creed or logic behind the cult and their actions other than Kanye West levels of crazy coming after... Steady on
1: (laughs) (laughs) I thought you couldn't find any way to top Nick Cage Um, but but maybe (laughs) at least I can see a through line to this that makes some sort of sense, not Kanye West (laughs)
0: Coming after a slow start, which establishes Mandy and Red's peaceful life, I was getting a tad annoyed with the deliberate quirkiness of this and about to mentally check out before it radically switches gear and turns into a more whacked out crank film. Now, The Last Hour is a mesmerisingly insane riot of sequences that, whether you're (laughs) on board or not, absolutely demand attention with action and visuals that left me in gales of laughter. I'm assuming we're not to take this seriously... Surely? Actually, I'm not sure of anything this film, or Nick Cage (laughs) in general, does. Uh, When he's interviewed, he doesn't seem like a maniac and gives broadly sensible reasons for playing characters the way he does, yet this is clearly the work of a madman. (laughs) (laughs) That's not entirely fair. This is an entire team of mad people dedicated to artisanally crafting a mad film. Your boring conventional judgments of good or bad are not an (laughs) axis that this film chooses to grade itself on. It's going for memorable, and it's most certainly that. (laughs) Bonkers. Couldn't make it up. Particularly the Cheddar Goblin. Yes. Very, very strange, but I I think I loved it.
1: I'm not sure. I don't know what... uh, (laughs) I, I don't know if I like this film or not. But I certainly don't regret watching it. Yes. <laughs> uh, I assume that Cheddar Goblin is a real vintage advert, but... I, <laughs> what? what is a Cheddar Goblin? You, you think a Cheddar Goblin is a macaroni and cheese advert where a
0: goblin vomits mac and cheese onto kids? you think that's a real thing?
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the 80s were a weird time, Scott. Don't you know, uh, didn't you ever wonder what the impetus for Ronald Reagan's Just Say No campaign was? <laughs> It was the Cheddar Goblin. Also, I'm going very much down a rabbit hole here, but the Cheddar Goblin talking about having 60% more cheese than other things than other cheese. Oh, but 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 isn't like cheese just 100% cheese when it's actual cheese? Yes, uh, there are many horrible things in this world, but of the things that are good and fine about this world that make me happy, one of them is Nick Cage. I am so glad that Nick Cage exists, and he is doing these things for us. <laughs> and in my head, the Cheddar Goblin was a real thing <laughs> in our real universe, uh, and I'm happier that to be, quite frankly. But yes, what to make of this film? I don't know. It, it is aggressively graded. You're right. It's <laughs> it's rather oppressively so at times. Yes, it is. I don't know. It's. Whoever thought that Nick Cage had another level of crazy in him, <laughs> and, and was given a vehicle in which to be this crazy? It's it's mind-boggling, it's bewildering, it's terrible and great, often at the same time. <laughs> And there's imagery in here that I'm not 100 sure is actually imagery or it's meant to be something that's happening in the film. Like for instance, there's a tiger at some point, but we're very conspicuously seeing Nick Cage go crazy while wearing a T-shirt with a large tiger in front. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm assuming this tiger doesn't exist because it's just a representation of Nick Cage when he visits the LSD dealer Hmm. or creator. But then I'm thinking, given the rest of this film, no, it may actually just be a tiger. Yes. And he has a tiger there because... I think this is probably more
0: documentarian in its approach. Uh, (laughs) I think if I tried to attempt to map metaphor onto this thing, we'd be here all day. Um, So I'm just going to choose to believe that this is all entirely
1: real. (laughs) All in universe. Yes. (laughs) Um, I mean, I have questions about the film. I had questions from the beginning. For what reason was the film set in 1983? And I couldn't, like, beyond the, some desire to use very sh- stranger things like dents for a couple of yeah. places that didn't need idents at all, let alone yeah. <laughs> conspicuously 1980s styled ones. I, well, well, why is it set in this time period? There's very little beyond the four three CRT television and the Cheddar Goblin <laughs> that's got much of a... An 80s attachment at all. There's not any particular plot point that would rely on not having a mobile phone mm. and having to explain that away. So I don't understand that. Um, I think the mistake you're making is to try and attempt to map reason onto this film. <laughs> yes, I'm trying to understand at all. <laughs> yes. yes. It's so strange. And again, because that part of my mind is always going on. But okay, Nick Cage is is going out for revenge. Okay, this makes sense. And he gets he's getting tooled up. He goes and gets his killing supplies from Bill Duke. Great. Okay. That massive, ludicrous axe he makes. Hmm. Did he have a mole for that ready-made? Or did he, in fact, take time out of his vengeance to make a mole just to make that <laughs> axe? And either were possible. And, and why? And then... At one point, he takes enough cocaine to kill a small horse. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah it doesn't die. I should stop his heart immediately, possibly make his heart explode. It is, it's bewildering. Now, as we've discussed several times, so I don't particularly care for horror films in general. But I, I actually, this time, find myself wishing that the supposed, uh, the, it first presented as supernatural bikers had been I actually thought that would have been more interesting. Yeah. Because there are some other hints that there is something supernatural going on because there's that... And it's one of the creepiest bits in the film, actually, the preserved giant hornet. Mm. But that it seems to be alive, even though it's preserved. Like, okay, that's that's creeping me out. I also don't (laughs) like insects. It's one of the few things that will make me squirm. But it's just so... It's so trippy and so odd and I love and hate this film and I hate-love it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, it's it's so hard to describe. I don't think you could recommend it, but I also would like to recommend it. <laughs> it is very much a film of opposites in many, many ways. With the possible exception of Johan Johansson's score. That's the one thing that I know for certain that I didn't like. Right. I, I, I've liked his music a lot, his collaborations with Denis Villeneuve in particular mm. are really good, the sort of otherworldly soundtrack to Arrival or the incredibly tense music in Sicario but here I don't know whether the issue was with his music or where and how it was used and because he sadly took his own life in February I mean I suppose that was after this was released at Sundance, so he did have input to how it was used, but there's one particular example I'm thinking of is near the beginning and there's this huge burst of pretentious music and it's meant to be like really unsettling. And I'm, and I'm watching the screen and i yeah, but dude, she's reading a book. Yeah. It's all that's <laughs> happening. Mandy's reading a book and there's nothing significant about that at all, really. So that's the only like definite downside I have is that score. Everything else is is good-bad, and bad-good, <laughs> and mostly mental. <laughs> I certainly don't think I've seen anything like Mandy before. Uh, if I have, it's quite some time ago. Yeah. It's, it's a thing. <laughs> Mandy is definitely a thing, and I recommend that you don't watch it while watching it. <laughs> yeah, uh, I
0: don't mean it's a... Uh... It's, what what I guess I could say is, that regardless of whether you wind up hating it or loving it, if you're the kind of person that actually bothers to listen to a film review podcast, then you're kind of the person who's going to want to be challenged by something, I would imagine. <laughs> this is certainly challenging on a number of levels. And so, uh, unless you have a particular distaste for, I suppose... Uh, is it fair to call this graphically violent? I suppose it is. It really felt like it is, but unless you have some sort of uh, reason to shy away from that or for some reason you're a monster and don't like watching Nick Gage going mental, then uh, yeah, that's probably the reasons you would have not to watch it. I think it's certainly worth looking at, regardless of whether you like it or hate it. I would say it's considerably less
1: graphic than Upgrade. Yeah, that's true, actually. Come and think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Which you, you wouldn't necessarily expect. Yeah. Yes, uh...
0: Also, a lot, it, it helps that a lot of the violence is, I guess, more Evil dead to 2 kind of violence levels rather than anything that's particularly coming across as realistic. Mm-hmm. So that that helps it feel a bit lighter, I suppose.
1: Yes. <laughs> and Nick Cage going crazy in the bathroom, downing a bottle of vodka to get rid of the burning in his throat from the garrotting. So it works, right? That's a fantastic scene.
0: <laughs> yes. Um, a lot to... Recommend or not recommend Depending on your view.
1: but yeah I, I think it's worth watching. And possibly both at the same time <laughs> This is the magic of Mandy yeah, it's it, it is the most interesting film I've seen
0: This year, so yes, is probably Well worth looking at for that basis Indeed. Thanks very much for listening in If you've been affected by the issues raised today Please feel free to get in touch with us on the Twitters At FudsonFilm or at facebook.com Slash Film, or through The old email on podcast At FudsonFilm.com